when it comes to money, it doesn't really pay to take this is risk reward spectrum. But if you don't have enough reward for the risk you're taking, it's not actually a good deal, right? And I would say that increase in risk is a lack of knowledge or information or skill. You're listening to The Life and Money Show, a podcast that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth for their families and impacting the world around them. And now here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey, hey, everyone. Annie Dickerson here together with the fabulous Julie Lamb. And today we have a fantastic guest whom we're going to introduce you to. It's none other than James Leo, founder of Bamboo Finance. And as you all may know, Julie and I are very passionate about not only helping women and moms and parents and families to learn more about and invest in real real estate to create financial freedom, but also to help the next generation. You've heard both Julie and me talk about how we're teaching our kids about money and finances over the course of many episodes now. And Julie's got all sorts of things that she's doing with her kids, teaching them about real estate and investing alongside and budgeting and having her kids have their own debit cards and same with me and my kids. They've invested alongside us in various real estate ventures, sometimes more successful than others, <laughs> but overall just trying to foster that sense of just a good relationship with money, a good healthy relationship and a curiosity around money and a healthy balance of that adventurousness as well as being conservative and and planning ahead. And so that's not always easy, especially when your kids are younger and helping them to grasp those concepts. And it's also not easy when they get a little bit older and they have different things that they want to spend their money on or they're not sure what investing is or maybe they're not interested. So these are all things that we're passionate about. And recently, as some of you may know, we put out our first, we called it our Money Wise kids initiative and it was for all the kids of investors in Good Egg Deals and members of the Good Egg Investor Club. And it was just so fun to watch the kids really share and explore their interests in entrepreneurship, in making money, in how to save money, things that they want to spend their money on. If they could dream big, what would they spend their dollars on? And then as we started talking about bigger numbers, like a million dollars, what would you do with a million dollars? Even these young kids as young as six and seven years old, started talking about helping others and giving back and having that impact. And so it's clear when we educate the next generation, especially early on to develop those healthy money habits, that they really want to contribute as well. So that was a wonderful session. We're definitely going to have more Money Wise Kids sessions. So if you're interested, definitely sign up for the Good Egg Investor Club and you can learn more all about that. 
But as for today's conversation, that segues very nicely into that because James Leo is also super passionate about kids and financial literacy. And we're going to get into not only his story and how he got started at a young age in a leadership position and how he then got into the venture capital world and into corporate finance, as well as carrying through all of that a passion for education and for kids and how he's been a part of lots of different companies and ventures of all different sizes and how he now brings that to Bamboo Finance, where his hope is to really transform the world of financial literacy when it comes to kids. Really thinking through how kids learn about money, and in particular, Asian families and their background when it comes to money and how that relates to the next generation. And I can speak from personal experience here, and we get into this a little bit in the show as well, the experience of our parents' generation, especially for Asian families and immigrant families, and how that has shaped our generation's relationship with money and how our current relationship with money will then shape the next generation. It's a fascinating topic. Some of you may know that I was born in Beijing and I immigrated to the United States when I was four years old. My parents never intended to stay, but series of things happened. So when they were younger, my parents were younger, they went through the Cultural Revolution in China. And so that, in many ways, shaped their relationship with money. So they had a big, big, big emphasis on saving. That was mostly what they taught to me growing up was to save as much as I could. And when we came to the States that we didn't have very much money and I saw them really struggle to scrape together, even for daily living, never mind luxurious things to spend our money on. But over time, I think that conservative relationship with money really helped me to see hey, you know what, it's okay to take some risks and it's okay to explore a little bit and to be curious with investing and what else is out there. Now, I didn't have the benefit of them necessarily teaching me about all those investment vehicles, but I saw through what they did with saving how conservative they were and I saw where that got them and it led me to think, hmm, I wonder what else is out there while I'm still young, what I can explore and how I can change the trajectory of my financial future. And so it's fascinating that relationship between our parents' generation, our generation and our generation and our kids. And that's something that we explore in this conversation with James. Now, before we dive in, One other thing I want to mention for any of you out there who are new to the space that we play in, which is predominantly real estate syndications, or in other words, group investing, we have a fantastic resource for you. It's our book, 
It's called Investing for Good, and we have a free hardcover copy for all of you. It'll really dive into the ins and outs of everything from what financial freedom is, how real estate plays into that, what real estate syndications are, what the process of investing is, what the risks and benefits are, the taxes, all of that. It'll walk you through from start to finish everything you need to know to invest confidently in your first real estate syndication. So to get your free hardcover copy, just just go to goodegginvestments.com slash book. All right. With that, let's dive into our conversation with James Leo. James, welcome to the show. How are you? Hello. Hello. I am well. Really excited to be here. Yes. Well, now, James, we are so incredibly excited to have you here as Julie and I are always talking about our mutual passion for not only helping busy moms and parents to invest in real estate and achieve financial freedom, but also teaching kids strong financial habits, how to save and invest and how to foster a pretty healthy relationship with money, which I know are all things that you're passionate about as well. So start by telling Telling us a little bit about your background and how you came to develop this passion for kids and financial literacy. Sure. And so this will be a relatively meandering path. Um, so bear Those with- are the best stories. So <laughs> give it all to us. Yeah. Sure. So yes, I actually didn't grow up particularly financially savvy. My family was not like, we didn't, they didn't like, we're not like wealth managers or anything like that. And so I had a pretty typical childhood all the way up until I was 17. And when I was 17, actually 16, 9-11 happened. At the time I was going to high school, I went to a super nerdy, very nerdy high school, but decided I wasn't really doing that much. And so dropped out, joined the military, and then went to the infantry, basic training. And then within maybe like four or five months, wasn't even 18 yet, had deployed overseas to, to Iraq was there for about a year and then came back. I would say this is really where my love of like education and mentoring and, and like learning came from. I came back and then shortly after 18 year old kid, almost 19, and decided to put me in charge of a, like a platoon, which is about 30 some odd soldiers. And most of the job work there was around like teaching, mentoring, training, right? That's kind of what you do when you're not deployed. And from really realized that I enjoyed being able to help people, be able to teach, be able to pass on like mentorship and knowledge. And so from there, decided, well, you know, I don't know that I want to stay in the military. I kind of owed it to my parents at that point to go back to school. So I went to college, USC, back in LA, mostly grew up. And then after that, went to a venture fund in education called University Ventures. There's kind of a funny story too. My options were either be A, a teacher or B, working in a, you know, investment banking, right? And I kind of knew that I wanted to be in education and I also knew I wanted to be in finance, but those two just felt like very, very different options. And so I got very lucky. A mentor of mine said, hey, you know, those sound really good, but on one, you'll kind of be struggling to live a reasonable salary in New York, as I remember you know, Annie. The other very like, high likelihood that you end up just analyzing paperclip companies. So no education experience at all. And at that time, he was raising this venture fund. So I think his advice might have been a little self-serving, but he was like, hey, I'm doing an education venture fund. Best of both worlds. Why don't you talk to my partners? And if it makes sense, maybe 
you can join. And so that really was my foray into like the professional world of education. That went back to military for a little while, commissioned as an officer. I'm, a, I'm an intelligence officer on my sort of reserve side or was, and then went back to Stanford for my master's in learning design and technology. So as you can tell, very much learning science nerd. I have this book on like learning mechanics. I pass out to every parent I know. It's like very nerdy. It's like my party, party favor. And then looking for an operating role at another uh, startup, got found by another venture fund, also in education, Learn Capital. And they're like, hey, come on board, help us out. And then if you find something interesting, you can go ahead and, and jump on. And so that was really my jump to, or my opportunity to get into the operating side. And so from Learn Capital, went to a company that was doing quite well at the time, well, actually just taking off. So a company based out of Beijing called VIP Kid at the time had about 3,000 North American teachers. They were using virtually tutor English for, I believe it's about 30,000 Chinese students. And then joined as first to open the US office and then to go over to Beijing, actually be chief of staff to CEO. And then while I was there, we went from that 3,000 teachers and 30,000 students to about 100,000 teachers and about a million students. So that was maybe four, three and a half years, I think. So wow. yeah, a lot of growth, a lot of hyperscaling. I got to really see a company get built from the ground up at a very, very fast pace on the backs of tens of thousands of Chinese tech workers, and then <laughs> raised north of a billion bucks at times, sort of a wild, wild west of ed tech which was very exciting for me, and then came back to the U.S. And so that's kind of my long meandering road. I don't know that I'm missing something, but I probably am. I don't mean to. And the thing that I kind of, that brought me to personal finance, actually, especially for kids, is along the way, I, I started to realize a topic that I've always been very passionate about. I provide very unsolicited financial advice to my nieces and, and really anyone who will listen and I realized I never actually was taught how to think about finance, right? Like if your parents don't do it, school during our time really wasn't pushing us very much. And so it was really about figuring it out. And I think looking back, I was like, wow, most of the people I knew in the military ended up having no idea how to manage their finance. It actually was a pretty hard challenge for me. I went through like all the extremes going from saving a dollar a day or trying to be like, okay, how do I only use a dollar a day to, and like tracking every single dollar spent on a spreadsheet to being a little more normalized now, but still always working things out and figuring out how to like budget well and, and things like that. So that really led me to be like, well, how can I contribute so that more kids have access to good financial literacy and knowledge and practice, right? Yeah. As you're talking, it's reminding me of yesterday, as we're recording this, it's April 15th. And yesterday I was just listening on NPR and they were talking to some college kids about filing taxes for the first time ever as an adult, wow. right? And they were asking them like, when is the filing deadline? And they were like, I don't know. Is there one? Is it coming <laughs> up? Is it, I think it's sometime in April. And, and they're like, are you going to file taxes? And they're like, I think so. But I'm not really sure. And they were talking about like how just as kids 
get into adulthood, a lot of them are unprepared on the financial side of things. And I think your background is so fascinating because you came into leadership at such a young age and you were able to see, you were able to lead this platoon and really mentor a lot of people and see some of the things I imagine that they were struggling with, their challenges and help them through that. Maybe not necessarily on the financial side, but maybe a little bit there as well. But then bringing that into right then the corporate space and the education space and now tying all of that together. So I think it's a fascinating story and especially how it's brought you to where you are today with your passion for kids and financial literacy and really helping that next generation so that they avoid a lot of those things like not knowing how to file their own taxes or not knowing what to do with their money and really getting ahead of that before they get to that point. To be honest, I feel like I still don't know what I don't know, right? Like, I'm always oh, yeah. paranoid that, like, should I be doing something? Like, do I not right. know? There's never totally. Been. And it's funny, you're talking about people I've worked with who maybe didn't have. And the other day, a friend of mine was asking, like, well, you know, what's your why? Like, you know, how did you get into this? And, like, was something in the military. And actually, it's funny because my biggest financial lesson learned from the military was lending a friend like $8,000 to like buy a car. And then he didn't have the financial <laughs> worry about to like actually pay me back. And so I was like, wow, I don't know. Like there was a lesson learned there, right? But I wish he had yeah, learned yeah. I wish I had learned it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. What kinds of things did you learn about money growing up? Oh, there's never enough of it. You know, I was born in Taiwan. We immigrated here. My parents are sort of like the small business owner that whole story. And so growing up, most of the narrative around money is literally, we don't have it. And that's why you can't have things that you want, right? And so I think growing up, that was quite hard. You know, I have a pretty big extended family. And I think most of my family actually grew up with that, that mindset. I wouldn't say that my parents were particularly great about like savvy, how do they teach your kid about like budgeting and what are investments, right? And so Growing up, really, it was that mindset of, okay, well, how do I save, 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 right? For this potential rainy day. You have like the squirrel mentality, right? Sad for any, anyone who dated me at the time. I was like notoriously stingy. With my- <laughs> <laughs> Always using Groupons. And I think, yeah, I would say that would be, I had to sort of like piece by piece, pick it up, right? Yeah. Pull my Google spreadsheet. And like track all of my daily expenses. And really, that's still a scarcity mentality, right? You, you still hoard money, essentially. But the funniest story here is the day it clicked. I remember my coworker, I was telling him how much money I spent like that month for food. And I was so excited and I was very proud of myself. And he heard me and he's like, he starts laughing. And he's like, he's Australian. So he's like, mate, less than I spend on cocktails before dinner. <laughs> and I was like, hey, you're a jerk. <laughs> He's like, are you going to save your way to like wealth? Like, where are you even putting this money? I'm like, it's my checking account. It's like, there's no interest, right? I was very young at the time. And so that to me was like, oh, maybe I need to go back and like actually think about systematically, you know, how am I managing my money versus just like, how do I just save as much as I can and just like leave it there, right? Right. Terrible, terrible strategy. I'm curious, what was your budget? (laughs) <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> this is probably more telling him than me. But at that time, I remember the amount was just south of 300 bucks. Okay. Okay. Which is yeah. 
Not bad for New York. Totally. Mm, for yeah. a whole month, right? For a whole month. That sounds oh. about right. It's funny. I was just talking about this with a girlfriend over the weekend and we were comparing notes. She only has two kids. I have three, but we were comparing notes on like our grocery bill. And what did she say? I think she said $600 a month for a family of four in San Francisco. And I was like, how in the world, like our grocery bill, I don't even want to share. It's embarrassing because kids eat like (laughs) they eat like it's so embarrassing. They eat like we starve them and we feed them so much food. But anyway, that's so funny, right? Like it's also interesting to think about how different people where they choose to spend, right? Like I'm a total foodie. I love spending food. I don't mind spending money on food, right? But then other people are like, just enough to get by a ramen. I'll finish the other half of my ramen, like, you know, later today or whatever and get by on 50 cents a day or whatever. I'm curious, James, to know, this is such a common theme, I think, amongst the Asian community in particular, right? Like when I was growing up, same thing. We can't have stuff because there isn't money. The one thing that I was always taught, and this was my money lessons when I was growing up from my mother and then also from my grandmother, which is that we track every penny we spend and we understand how much we paid yesterday for this same thing and then how much we're paying today. What that two cent differences or what literally my grandmother had like a chart. She would write down on like glass containers, how much she paid for like how much pound. And then she would track how much more it was. But this is all this tracking stuff, right? Like you had talked about and this idea of saving. And so when I got to be older and as a young adult, my whole thing was like, I'm going to save, I'm going to save, I'm going to save. And then I got to the point where I like, well, I've saved, what do I do with this now? Right. How do you think that that ties in. I know Annie is very similar story for you as well. Where does that come from in, as it relates to the Asian background? Yeah. So a couple of things, actually, I've started writing this, like, I think this is from my venture background. I, I like to write little industry reports for myself. <laughs> and That's uh, so you know, cute. <laughs> a couple of things. So, you know, one will go sort of like really deep and then up. So that generation of Asians lived through a period of like immense turmoil, right? Immense turmoil. There were wars all the time. They're constantly sort of fleeing countries. And that kind of environment tends to create like a, a certain mindset, right? You know, similar to scarcity mindset, similar to, you never know where that money's going to go. So you have to save it. Secondly, I think traditionally, like a lot of Asian cultures, most Asian cultures, and even today, they didn't rely on credit, right? Like credit is not a financial vehicle that you use. You don't really have much leverage. You don't borrow money to make more money. That's not really a concept. And so everything you do, it's actually just based off your savings, right? And so in that kind of situation, you have to think, okay, well, if I want to buy a house one day, I need a tremendous amount of cash, right? And so that also leads, I think, to the hoarding, right? Funny, I just had this thought, but it reflect back on my parents. The financial regulation and products and everything varies immensely from culture to culture and country to country. Right. Well, country to country mostly. And so when you come to a foreign country where you don't speak, you can barely figure out how to do your taxes, right? You just know that you have to do them. And the more that you get in cash, the less you have to report and pay. But you mostly, you don't have access to other vehicles. So the only thing you can think of is like, well, I don't know how to, you know, invest or open a brokerage account or like whatever else, right? I have no credit. I can't just go buy a house. And so the only real tool I have on hand is saving, right? And so I think those are just three, like kind of off the top of my head. 
But I think those are pretty strong ones, especially as it relates to background of like immigrants and, and sort of moving to the U.S. We'll get back to our conversation with James in just a minute. Have you been thinking about investing in real estate, but aren't sure you have the time or the desire to manage the investment? Perhaps you're afraid, like we were, that you'll make the mistake of choosing the wrong market or the wrong team and lose your entire investment. Well, that's exactly why we created the Good Egg Investor Club. We do the work of identifying solid real estate investment opportunities in the best markets around the country and then partner with you to acquire these investments and then we'll all share in the returns. We'll identify the growing markets, strong, experienced teams, and the solid deals. We do all the heavy lifting of managing the tenants and the renovations, and as a passive partner, you get to enjoy all the benefits of investing in real estate, monthly cash flow, long-term appreciation, and the ongoing tax benefits. When we first discovered passive investing through real estate syndications, we realized it fit perfectly into our busy lives. We could put our money to work for our families, work less, and get more time back in our days so that we could focus on what matters most and discover our true passion and purpose in life. We've now helped hundreds of people invest passively in real estate syndications and are seeing the positive impact it's had on their lives. We invite you to partner with us by joining the Good Egg Investor Club today so you can start putting your money to work for you and get more time back in your day because we know that when people have more time in their days, they can do the true work they were intended to do and the world will be a better place. To sign up for the Good Egg Investor Club, go to goodegginvestments.com slash invest and we'll take it from there. That's goodegginvestments.com slash invest. And now back to our chat with James Leo. Where does the hoarding come from? I mean, you touched on it a little bit, but like, this is like a thing. I mean, it is wild. My mother-in-law, you know, I don't need to go and disparage my poor mother-in-law in my podcast, but I'm sure she, knows. I hope she, knows. she has stuff from when my husband was like the same age or younger than my kids are today that she's trying to pawn off on me. Like, and I'm like, no, 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 I don't need it. Please. Like she would bring loads of like clothes over, like plastic containers, like stuff that we don't need, but it's like, so is it, and I guess you kind of touched on this. It's this idea that what they went through having to leave the country and the war and all these different things that they might've gone through that have caused them to have this certain mindset. How do you think that actually has benefited us as the next generation? Because we don't go through that, right? Like we didn't go through that. So how do we get to benefit from that? And is it because they went through that, that we are now all sitting here on this podcast talking about finance? Like we don't need to save, we need to earn more, right? Like all of these things. What are your thoughts on that? Certainly. I mean, I wouldn't call it a backlash, but there is a sort of recognition. Like, wait, why did I grow up sort of eating nothing, but like two day old rice, right? (laughs) And why did I carry over, you know, throughout college? I ate nothing but Subway sandwiches because they had the $5 foot long the entire time I was in college. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to the point where when I left my first job, they actually gave me a $500 gift card for Subway. Like, oh, this will last you maybe a month. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it definitely does. So, you know, I think that in terms of benefits, right? Generally, you're better off 
being a little, in certain cases, you're better off being more conservative than sort of like haphazardly doing things, right? When it comes to money, it doesn't really pay to take this is risk reward spectrum. But if you don't have enough reward for the risk you're taking, it's not actually a good deal, right? And I would say that increase in risk is a lack of knowledge or information or skill, right? Mm-hmm. You're actually just increasing the chance that you're going to acquire like an asset that isn't going to pan out very well. And so if you don't have other options, right? Like you're actually probably better off being a little more frugal saving because at the very least, you know that you're not going to end up buying a bunch of call options or something and, or like put options and then sort of getting taken to the cleaners, right? Which would not recommend. That's kind of a hard learning <laughs> experience. And so, yeah, I think that's definitely a big part. The other big part, I just watched a new Ronnie Chang special. Not as good as the first one. He talks about this, right? That's the mentality of how important money is to our culture, right? It's such a big thing. We're not shy about it. Was it like our New Year's greeting is literally, I hope you get rich, right? Like, right. <laughs> yep. Just, you know, like, oh, we want you to be a professional. Like we want you to be a doctor, but it's not really about helping people, right? It's really because it's nope. like the best way to <laughs> yep. vault yourself up to the right. Up middle class, right? And yeah, so yeah. our culture evolves so much around money that I think it's kind of hard to get away from it. But on top of yeah. that, I think having this experience of all my parents ever talked about was like, they made it very painful growing up, this relationship with money, right? And I think most of our generation sort of says, well, we don't have to do that. We're actually like relatively well-educated compared to most of the population. We're well-compensated. Like there should be better ways of having this relationship with money than just hoarding and being afraid it won't be there anymore. Or like buying yeah. gold and sticking in your mattress like my grandmother did. <laughs> really or worse yet, cash, which is like, I mean, I don't understand that. But anyway, one thing I want to get to, I want to make sure we spend some time talking about this is around your interest in teaching kids around finance, because this is something that I've been so passionate about. In fact, last night I was just watching an old video of me trying to teach my daughter. I think she was five at the time when I was first getting into this space, trying to teach her what about syndication and what syndication was. And we were talking about real estate and talking about why does somebody rent versus own and what does it mean? And trying to tell her that a five-year-old and trying to explain that in a way that she could understand. I look back now, it was very hard because <laughs> I'm like, here it is, honey. Now tell it to mommy. And I was like videoing her. I'm like, great. She learned it all in like five seconds. And she's like, um, I don't know, mommy. And so now it's been years of this talk and she gets it now. But why is this a passion? Why is teaching kids something that you think is important for us, particularly as it relates to the Asian community? Tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, just very advanced. Like my niece is like six. I light up when she asks me about money, but it, our conversation is at the level of like, I found the penny and it's like shiny. It's okay, but you don't want to like throw that penny away. You want to keep it. Like that's kind of the level that yeah. she's at. I kind of always knew I was going to do something with kids, very likely. I make this joke, but I've had, ironically, names picked out for my one day future children when I was like in the eighth grade, right? And... <laughs> When I think about why I do things, almost all of it, for some reason or another, come back to like, because I would be able to teach my kids better. I would be able to give them a better life, right? Probably also very Asian. Something about that got ingrained in me, I think, that it is tremendously. And the question, by the way, was that, you know, why is it important, right, for us to teach? I think, I'll just be blunt. I think our generation was sort of done a, a relatively large injustice in that we left like financial literacy and 
we call it KSH, right? Like the ability to, to know about financial literacy, to know how to manage it well and things like that. We left that to families, right? Like individual families. And well, that sort of just perpetuates this wealth gap, right? Like obviously if you know more about what you become wealthier, you teach that to your kids. If you don't, then how are you going to teach your kids, right? And it's particularly hard when you're an immigrant, right? And you come and there's nobody to teach you. So I think a big part of like, there's this like not lending mentality, but everyone's like, oh, my friend told me I should invest in this like property here. So that's what we're doing. My parents somehow got into like a bagel shop at one point. It just made sense. My Jewish uncle was like starting a bagel shop. I'm like, oh, you know, we everyone else is doing it. We should do it too, right? And so I think for the next generation, it is so important that they have that sort of equal playing field, right? They at least have the tools that they need to so much of the, I, I live in Portland, right? And so I don't know that we have more homelessness here, but we have, it's definitely very concentrated into your face, by the way, not important. I don't associate with that, but here yeah, I see it so much, right? And I think a large part of that is because we don't invest in those things, right? Mm-hmm. On the kids part, I think a big piece of that is that the future of finance and currencies, like, you know, our understanding of currency is, like, is going to be so different, right? The world that they live in is so different. And if they don't go in there with the sort of tools and the sort of knowledge to be able to take care of themselves, right? It, it's like giving a kid who's never had sugar, like putting them in a candy factory, right? And then giving them a credit card. They don't have the sort of like mindset to understand that, right? So this might be kind of a little bit of a controversial question, but why do you think that financial literacy, financial education, anything around finance has been left out of the educational system? I mean, I have my own theories and we don't need to get into that here, but I definitely think it was intentional. And one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about helping my kids and we've started Money Wise Kids within our network as well, our investor club network. Part of it, I feel like, is because if we don't teach this next generation, they're going to be just as blind, kind of bumbling around, trying to figure things out for themselves because it's. In, I believe it's intentionally left out of the education system. I mean, we prioritize PE. I remember being in high school and like the teacher was like, you need to get in that pool and swim and learn how to swim for what? And I refused to do it. And I think I'd like got an F in PE or whatever. And it's like, (laughs) why? And it's like, I love physical education. I work out all the time, but anyway, that's a whole nother topic, but (laughs) why is financial education not included? Do you, what's your personal opinion? Do you think that was by design or do you think, what are your thoughts? I always get reminded to like, be careful not to straight like cancel territory, right? Like I, (laughs) but then, you know, I strongly suspect I think in some areas, maybe I'd like to be like, well, they just don't think about it, right? Or like things tend to go back to states, right? And that makes things very hard. But it all sort of that in itself is sort of implicit in this idea that people who have power tend to like to stay in power and it doesn't really help them to think about, right? Whether it's intentional or like the intent is malicious or not, it doesn't really pay for them to think about how do I make sure everyone else has the ability to keep more of the money because otherwise, like, I mean, yeah, we're getting it, right? So <laughs> largely if you look at, so most spend on financial literacy is coming from, it's mostly like financial institutions, right? It's not really so much to teach people. It's more as a marketing tool, right? Totally. Yeah. And so similar, <laughs> similar issues, I think. But yeah, I, I just don't think that 
best case scenario, they just didn't think about it because they didn't empathize with it because they grew up in such a natural thing that they had. Worst case scenario, it can be a little less charitable. And it was really like, well, that seems like a bad idea. Like, why would we want them to be better at it, right? That's fair. That's You walked the line real nicely, James. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm very well practiced. <laughs> I get yelled at all the time. The 10,000 hour rule. <laughs> like, <laughs> all right. Well, one other question I do want to ask, and maybe not just a question, but more of an open-ended question is, you can, we, we kind of touched on it earlier, talking about finance with kids, especially younger kids is hard, right? It's very yeah. difficult, especially for most adults to try to teach younger kids. It can be very clear to us and how we explain things because we've had so much time to really understand how does the trading system work and bartering and what does this all mean? and how does it work and the meaning of money and what all of that stuff. But maybe give us your, if there's a parent out there who's listening, who says, you know what, this is such an important topic to me, but I don't even know where to start. How might they start thinking about talking about finance or and or educating their children around the topic of finance? What are your suggestions? What are your thoughts, tips, tricks, anything? So many. The most basic fundamental level, it really comes down to get them involved, right? Like kids are surprisingly more cognizant, right? But just the, the active exposure, the act of like, they'll see you as a parent doing things and sort of explaining to them, like, and you can always try to figure out how to make it sort of more palatable, but this is why I do that, right? And this is why I don't do this, right? And this is how I think about it. And the more you just sort of expose them to it, the more they'll sort of pick up. I think that's the, sort of like the most we'll call it like the most frictionless or osmosis-based version of teaching. And then we have sort of like more in-depth. So there's a ton of books out there, right? Let me see. I, my, you can't see my desk is actually covered in finance, like personal finance books now. <laughs> and more and more people are making these resources because it's becoming a bigger part of the public mind share, right? So one of the really good ones that I've come across was Make Your Kid a Money Genius, right? Even if you're not, this is a fun one. It's a little sort of like, it feels a little haphazard, but it really is pretty helpful. Just like a basic foundation. It's broken down by their age and sort of like what you should be talking about, what you should not talk about, just tips and tricks. Guy Kawasaki also, Annie, I think we talked about this last time, also has a book specifically for teens, right? I think it comes down to practice right? Like I think where financial literacy tends to fail is that if you just teach someone like the concepts of knowledge, it's really hard. Like talking about to a kid about taxes or income is, is not like going to stick really, right? Or how do you budget? Like I think they actually need to go through that process of, okay, well, like, hey, I have this like $5, right? And I've been taught about needs and wants. There's this thing here. Should I spend it? Should I not? Right? And now really is the time to do that, right? You spend like $5, you blow it on a candy bar or like a cheap comic that like, you know, melts right? like in the rain. And you'll be like, oh, I learned better next time. Versus like you get a credit card and now you spend over $20,000 on like a jalopy, like a hoopty car is now. But like, and it breaks down and you're like, oh, that was a bad idea, right? I should have like actually done some due diligence, right? And so getting those reps in early, I think is so important. Ultimately, it's probably what's going to get left out of the curriculum, right? It's kind of the the wave of curriculum adoption. And then the sort of most, I would say like the most intensive slight plug, but, you know, online courses, right. Getting them to someone who can sort of help them and, and help walk them through it. Cause sometimes it is hard for them to relate to like directly their parents. Right. And just hearing it from a knowledgeable other 
tends to help sort of cement it. More important probably is work like being able to work with like peers or talk converse with peers. You know, at Stanford, we have this like big belief in like social cultural aspects of learning, right? And so being able to sort of be in a community of practice and talk to other kids who are learning the same things and sort of like co-developing their sort of understanding is from my perspective, probably one of the best ways to really cement long-term understanding of this culture. Yeah. I think it's so funny because you're saying, get them into it, do the practice of spending the money, losing the money, whatever it is. Right. And your example that we talked about earlier about the $8,000 lending the car, it's such a good lesson. Right. But like, it's unfortunate that maybe if you went through a similar lesson of like letting somebody borrow, let's say when you were seven, letting somebody borrow $10 and losing that $10 and experiencing that when the stakes are small and learning those lessons when the stakes are small, I think is how we help them be able to identify and see, ah, I remember that. Cause I remember when I was seven, I lent somebody $10. I'm not going to do that again without <laughs> doing my due diligence or whatever it is. Right. So it's this idea of really getting kids out there to make those mistakes. And it's something that I'm trying to go through right now as a parent and trying to, I see it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, why would you do that? Like, don't lend him. Like I watch my kids talking about money and being very free with their money or the complete opposite. And I want to just jump right in and start navigating, you know, directing them and telling them don't do that or do this or think about this. And, but it's really through the act, I think when the stakes are low and when they are young and the act of letting them have those mistakes and those failures now is really a part of it too. So like you said, letting them experience it and the practice of like hand handling money and knowing how to earn money and knowing how to invest money and all of these things. And we've talked about this. I think we talked about this briefly before, but Greenlight is an app that I found a couple of months ago and fell in love with it. I mean, it is everything. And before Greenlight, I was like little white paper envelopes with like invest and like <laughs> having to, oh God, honey, go to the ATM, pull out 20 bucks and don't forget to stop on your way home and get some ones because it was just a mess. And now Greenlight is like all in one place. I can, my husband and I can move money in and out, but watching them make their mistakes there, they can buy stocks on there. My daughter bought Dell, she bought Amazon and, you know, she gets up and she's like, ah, oh, I'm down $2 today. And we talk about, well, why did that happen? And so she researches and all. anyway, I don't get any profit from anyone, by the way, who signs up for Greenlight. I know it sounds like I might, but I think it, back to your point, what you originally said, I think getting the kids in the practice of learning how to make these early mistakes while the stakes are small before they get big. And it's like, instead of $8, it's $8,000, right? And I think that's typically how our generation has learned is we get out there and then we do the 8,000 and we're like, ah, what did I just do? <laughs> and so the sooner we can learn those mistakes, I think the better. So I love that. I love that. And I definitely will check out that book and hopefully we'll, we'll put that in the show notes as well. But I think it's so fun to watch the next generation be interested because my kids are, are very interested in talking about money when we did our Money Wise Kids thing and watching the kids just chime in on the Zoom, just their responses. And they're intuitively, you talked about this earlier, intuitively, I think know a lot more than we give them credit for when it comes to the topic of finance. And so... Well, so much fun, so much more that we could talk about, but we're going to move into the last part of our show now, the Life and Money Show Spotlight Round, where we're going to ask you a couple of questions around life and money. You ready? Ooh, do it. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So the first question is around your life and money. So what is one thing that you're doing right now to live a meaningful and intentional life by design? 
Well, probably more now than than ever before. I've spent the last ten years preparing to launch an education initiative that I think will be able to help kids and or adults, but primarily my my hope is always sort of stumbling upon something that really inspired me for kids. And I'm just going through that process, right? And going through the reps. It is hard, I think. It is challenging because coming from a more analytical investment side, or even like an operator at like a Series D company, right? Versus like just building something from nothing, not a skill set I've ever ever developed. And I'm just like learning through lumps, right? But it's meaningful in that sort of you, you have this idea of what the mission is at the end. I love that so much. 10 years. Wow. What a journey. Oh my gosh. You finally get this thing off the ground. It's going to be so amazing and so cool to be committed to something for that long. is going to be exciting when you finally get it off the ground. So that's awesome. All right. Well, second question is around others' life and money. So what is one life or money hack that you can share that will make an impact in others' lives right now? Oh boy. I don't know if I'm the best. I have like a notoriously high pain tolerance. So I don't know that my hacks are, but you know, like always thinking about like why, kind of like a grandma, like why do I need to spend this money if I can get it for cheaper? Right. And this has been like, when I was in college, I wouldn't buy milk. I would go do, we had a Starbucks downstairs. And so I would go to the Starbucks and like get the non-fat milk and then pour into a baggie with my cereal oh, and eating class. Disgusting. I know. <laughs> Always, always looking for discounts, always looking for, and you know, I don't recommend everyone spends a ton of time doing it. I'm getting better at like not, it's all relative, right? (laughs) Think about the value of your time, but you know, if you're young, you know, you probably don't have any better to do anyway. So scrape some coupons. Yeah, there you go. And you never know when you're out shopping somewhere and you just ask for a discount because you never know. They might just be like, yeah, sure. Okay. You know, I'll take that. So what's the worst they can say? No. So love it. All right. Last question is around life and money in the world. What is one thing that you're doing right now to make the world a better place? Ooh. So aside from, we've already talked in depth about sort of what we're building towards. I try to be a nice human. I try to make people's days better after having met me. I actually love, so I have these two huskies. You can't see them, but they're just like lying here sleeping on the ground. And nothing makes me happier really than like, you know, when I walk down the street and then someone like gets to pet them and they clearly get so much joy out of it. Right. And so just little things like that, right? Like how do I leave this world a better place than I found it? And just at a day-to-day level, how do I leave the people who interact with me feeling good for having sort of like had the interaction? Well, it's clear from the times that we've talked, James, that you bring such a light and such an energy to every conversation that you're a part of. And just your passion for kids and for finance and for helping to make the world a better place comes through in everything that you do. So, so thrilled that we had a chance to have this conversation and excited to continue to follow everything that you're doing. So tell the listeners, because I'm sure a lot of them will be interested as well. What's the best place that they can go to learn more about all that you're doing? Yeah. So I have some classes getting set up right now. Also, we're actually in a sort of like in-between cycle. But once they are out, they can look for, I believe I'm under Teacher James. It's a very Chinese way to say it, but like Teacher James or Mr. Leo or Teacher Leo, something like that. They can also probably look up James Leo, right? In personal finance on both OutSchool, which some parents would be familiar with, and then also All School, A-L-L-S-C, well, school, right? Alternatively, we have a like a landing page set up, they can go to bamboofi.org. That's B-A-M-B-O-O 
fi.org. And they can sort of like put in their email and do pre-signups and we'll send out information as it comes through our, our sort of email system. And then finally, and actually this is probably the preferred method, they can always, 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 anybody, feel free to reach out, james at bamboofi.org. And then there's really nothing I like more than being helpful. And so if I can be helpful in any small way, shape or form, happy, happy to do so. So yeah, that's a couple of ways. All right. Well, to all the listeners, we'll have those links and that information for you in the show notes. James Leo, founder of Bamboo Finance. James, thank you so much for being here and sharing your insights with us and our listeners today. Thank you. This is a great way to kick off my weekend. I'm this in the cold shower. I am jazzed. <laughs> there, you're all set. <laughs> Thanks, all set, James. Thanks, Annie. Thanks, Julie. You've been listening to The Life and Money Show, the number one podcast for people who, like you, are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth, and making an impact in the world. For more resources, check out goodegginvestments.com and be sure to join the Life and Money Show community on Facebook. And if you got value out of this show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring you amazing new conversations.